Welcome to the Bible Questions podcast brought to you by BibleQuestions.org and the Holly Street Church of Christ. This podcast is dedicated to answering your Bible questions from the Bible. My name is Brian, and along with Jeff, we are the hosts of this program. Greetings, and welcome to the Bible Questions podcast program sponsored by the Holly Street Church of Christ. You've got your regular hosts with you today, Jeff and Brian. Brian, today we're going to do a second part about questions regarding the church. So I guess I would encourage our listeners, if you haven't listened to part one regarding uh, these questions, uh, you might want to do so. Because in part one, we, we tended to answer some of the more fundamental questions related to the church, what it is. Do I have to go to church, etc.? Uh, in today's episode, uh, we're going to share some of the questions and answers we've received that might be a little bit more unique or complex. But before we get into that, Brian, any uh, any comments? Some of these topics are so broad that it makes sense to kind of, in our minds, break it down to like you just said. You know, hey, let's cover some of the fundamentals because we have a wide range of listeners, different maturity levels, that kind of thing. And so certainly when it comes to the church, the same thing, you know, basics about the church, but eh, church-related questions that, you know, really require a little bit more thought and study. So hopefully that's what we can convey today. Indeed. All right, let's get into it. Okay, Brian, so the first uh, question comes in, uh, I guess anonymously, but from a uh, person with a Presbyterian background. They ask, what does the Bible say about women in a leadership role in the church? Where is it referenced in the Bible? Yeah, I like this question because certainly as you look at denominations, especially, it's becoming more and more common for women to take a leadership role in the church. Now, we know when it comes to denominations itself that some of those denominations were started by women. So you think about Ellen White and people like that have started religion. So this is nothing new. However, I think, Jeff, culturally, because we're also seeing the same thing in our cultures where there are more and more women that are leading corporations as CEOs and taking a prominent role in society. It's only logical for people to say, well, then why don't we see them take more of a role within the church? And then they do. Well, what does the Bible say? And in this particular case, the Bible gives us the answer to this question you know, as it relates to women in leadership roles in a couple different places. So the first one is in 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, where we're told, Let a woman learn in silence with all submission, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Now, some people would disparage Paul for making that comment, but remember, this is the Holy Spirit that's guiding Paul to say this. So this comes directly from God our Father. This is his truth. In fact, over in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 34, it says, Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive as the law also says. So Paul is teaching in these two passages that we just read that a woman was not to have authority, or if you use the King James, it says not to usurp a man's authority and take a leadership position in the church. So just as Christ has authority over man, and God also gave man authority over woman, we understand that this was God's intention. In fact, to take it one step further, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and verse 3, 
But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So that's the pecking order, for lack of a better term. Now, this silence that Paul speaks about is not saying that women can never speak in the church, because we know in passages like Colossians 3.16 and Ephesians 5.19 that women, for instance, sing you know, praises to the Lord and that sort of thing in conjunction with men. So everybody together is singing and making melody in their heart. But this is talking specifically about in a worship service, having a woman teach or preach or lead singing or, or whatever it might be. And the Holy Spirit really gives, you know, through Paul, the reason for this over in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 8, because it says here, for man is not from woman, but woman from man. And going back to 1 Timothy 2, we looked at 11 and 12, just to refresh our memory about 12, and I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but to be in silence. He goes on to say in verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. And so, you know, once again, some of these passages can be kind of difficult to understand. Like, well, what does that have to do with anything that the woman sinned first and that she came from man? Well, I think the coming from man part shows us that it was God's intention, once again, that there be a subjective relationship between the man and woman, and God has put man over a woman. Now, you could take that to the extreme, and we know that there are men that, because they have authority over women, lord it over them, as we might say, and are oppressive in those kinds of things. Well, that's sinful, and that's not appropriate. But as it relates to authority, this is what God wanted. In fact, this is also reflected in the qualifications for elders and deacons that we see in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, that it can only be men that are the husband of one wife. So it clearly tells us when it comes to church leadership, if you will, that it's the same thing. So a final thought here, Jeff, and then I'll turn over to you. And that is, you know, we're, we're not saying, and certainly the scriptures more importantly are not saying that women therefore have no role in the church. They have absolute roles in the church as it relates to teaching. So for instance, often before a worship service, you'll have Bible classes, you'll have women that are teaching. Uh, you also just in general have women teaching the older women, teaching the younger women and how they should live their lives and how they should conduct themselves. And we see that in Titus chapter three, uh, verses two through five. So I'll just wrap this up by saying, you know, it's evident from the scriptures that God wanted men to be leaders in his church and to be the ones who conducted the worship service and provided leadership in the church. And Jeff, I'll just say that, you know, I get that it can also be confusing because we see prophetesses and for instance, in the the scriptures, and women doing some things that would lend us to think, well, why can't they continue to do that today? But that's kind of another study. But anyhow, I can also, I think, add to some people's question about why women would serve more in a leadership role today. Sure. Well, and some people might say, well, you know, Paul was just, you know, giving his opinion. But that's not the basis of his argument, if you will. Well, they say, well, Paul, this, you know, this is just a cultural thing in Paul's time. But again, Paul goes all the way back to the creation account and provides a basis that is, is timeless. It's, it's not cultural. So to say today, well, you know, our culture is different. Therefore, we don't have to do this is invalid reasoning from the scriptures, even though, as you pointed out in our modern culture, the, the feminist movement, et cetera, women's liberation, et cetera, even though it's popular. Main and maybe you know occurring in the in the business you know workplace, 
uh, certainly not something that the Lord wants in his church within local congregations. That's right. And it's just respecting God's word, isn't it? Indeed. So the next question for you, Jeff, comes from Shannon. And Shannon asks, what does it mean to bring reproach on the church? Is that phrase in the Bible? And how do you remove the reproach? Okay. So this term reproach certainly is a biblical term, uh, at least 84 times, give or take, in the New American Standard Bible. As a noun, basically, it means an expression of disapproval or disappointment, as in to have a reproach. Uh, As a verb, to reproach someone means to address someone with disapproval or disappointment. Now, there is one verse that does mention reproach and church together. That's 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 7, which says, and he must have a good reputation. Of course, this is in the context of the qualifications of elders. He must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Uh, but contextually, this is not related to bringing reproach on the church. So there isn't really a verse that explicitly talks about bringing reproach. No disapproval uh, on the church. But I suppose you could make a claim that anytime a person who claims to be a Christian no, is known as a Christian, anytime they sin publicly, you know, can certainly bring, you know, disapproval, reproach upon themselves, you know, as a hypocrite, if you will. And I guess indirectly also on Christianity that, that he allegedly represents. You know, certainly uh, it gives uh, ammunition, if you will, for an atheist or agnostic or skeptic to say, wow, you know, if that's an example of, quote, unquote, a good Christian, you know, I don't want to have anything to do with it. I don't want to have anything to do with that or Christianity or or the church. And in contrast, certainly we see in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 through 16, where Christians are commanded to be spiritual lights in a dark world you know, letting their light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Uh, You know, even though there's not an explicit verse that talks about bringing reproach on the church, you know, I can kind of see that principle, you know, uh, practically speaking, uh, occurring when uh, Christians play the hypocrite, right? Yeah, and that's a good point. I think, you know, where sometimes you hear, like, if you're a member of the Church of Christ— and you've listened to sermons over the years, oftentimes at the end of the sermon, the preacher will extend the invitation. And sometimes they'll make a statement along the lines of, you know, if whether you want to come forward now and be baptized, or if you brought sin or reproach against the church, you can come forward and ask for forgiveness. And some might think, well, what does that mean? Well, if you think about it, as you mentioned, if you're out in the world and you commit some sin, whether it's because you're a hypocrite or you know, you just do something terrible, and people were to find out that you're a Christian, you certainly have smeared, for lack of a better term, the name of Christ. And and maybe because you were out in the public, you have no way to go back and repent to those who may have seen you. You might even know who has seen you. So I think that's why it's an opportunity, you know, while you're there as a church to come forward and say, you know, I did something in public that really is poorly reflecting on Christianity and the church in general. And that's why I'm coming forward to confess this publicly. So anyhow, I think that also could be one of the reasons why people wonder about this idea of, you know, bringing reproach upon the church. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly to uh, clear the air or, uh, you know, establish the person's uh, repentance, if you will, as we sometimes say, the, the degree of 
repentance and confession of sin should be uh, commensurate with the degree of publicity, so to speak. Private sins, public sins. There you go. That's right. All right, Brian. Looks like you get the next question from Leon, who writes in, what scriptures or logic would I use to prove that the church and the kingdom are the same thing? I know they are, but I'm not quite sure of the scriptures I would use to prove it. Thanks for your reply. Yeah, I like this question because there can be some confusion, especially when you look through the New Testament, and the kingdom is talked about a lot. In some cases, it's the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes it talks about the kingdom of God. And so, yeah, I like this because certainly when we're studying with others, and certainly for ourselves, we just want to be able to distinguish the difference between the kingdom in that sense. So for me, I, you know, I think a good place to start is, is with references to the future coming of the kingdom that Jesus mentioned. So for instance, in Mark chapter 9 and verse 1, Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. So not only does Jesus talk about it coming in the future, but it appears from that verse, of course, that it would be in the near future because, of course, some of those people would still be living. Over in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 29, of course, that whole section there in verses 26 through 29, Jesus is establishing the memorial that Christians partake of on the first day of the week to remember his death. We call that the, the Lord's Supper, and it's referenced as the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11. Jesus says in, in uh, verse 29 of Matthew 26, But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And so here we see references to the kingdom as something that would come in the near future. And in fact, we see that after Jesus died and arose, that Christians started partaking of the Lord's Supper that he established. So for instance, over in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 26, Paul here says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. And that whole chapter, Paul is talking about how Christians were abusing the partaking of the Lord's Supper. They were not partaking of it in the right way. They weren't waiting for one another. They were commingling it with a common meal, those kinds of things. But it tells us that they were actively taking it at that time. And then also, Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, it says, Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread. So we see that after, once again, Jesus arose from the grave they did start partaking of that after the church was established as a weekly memorial on the first day of the week. Now, we also see in some other passages that Christians are referred to as being in his kingdom, active, and that mankind is called into his kingdom, which also would tell us it was active at that time. So a couple passages, if I could get you to read the first one for us, Jeff, in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, talk about this. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of sins. And Brian, just as a quick pointer, interesting that the verb tense here is especially relevant to the question. That's right. Has delivered us, right? And conveyed us. And so that's something that happens when we become a member of, of the universal church, as we might say it, by being baptized into Christ 
for the forgiveness of our sins. And so we are brought into that kingdom. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And so those who are in sin are called out of darkness, we're told in another passage, and into his marvelous light. And then once we are in that, once we are Christians and are in that kingdom, we want to walk worthy of God who called us into that kingdom. Now, as I mentioned earlier, you know, some confuse the kingdom that is referring to the church in this case and the kingdom of heaven, which is also mentioned a lot in the New Testament. But, you know, if you study both of these two kingdoms, what we see is that there is a difference between the two. In fact, we have several good articles and even questions that we've answered along this line on our website, uh, which we'll reference at the end of the podcast that you can go to in that section if you want to do a deeper study. Because there's a lot said, once again, about the kingdom of God. We think about heaven and so forth. And so certainly worth uh, studying it more deeply. Jeff? Yeah. Well, and, and good point, especially since there's a lot of confusion today about the kingdom not having yet been established. And I'm specifically referring to premillennialism, where they say, you know, Jesus came here the first time, set up his church. Uh, when he comes back the second time, uh, he's going to set up his kingdom you know, to reign on the earth for a thousand years. And then eventually with uh, the end of that period, uh, you know, heaven and hell, judgment day, etc. Uh, and yet with these passages here, we see, you know, Jesus is already king ruling over his kingdom, uh, which in essence is the church. And so that that's a, that's another argument, if you will, against uh, premillennialism. That's it. That's exactly all right, so the next question, Jeff, is about church discipline. And so uh, we have this submitted by somebody who was anonymous, and they said, what does the Bible say about church discipline specifically if a church member becomes aware that a fellow member is in an inappropriate relationship? How should they proceed? Yeah, real good question. And for, for those of our listeners who might not be familiar with this concept of church discipline, in essence, it means that the local congregation, especially if it has elders, you know, monitors itself for members committing sin, especially in a public manner, right? It becomes publicly known within the congregation. The church, you know, takes an active role in dealing with that, you know, in terms of perhaps teaching, you know, pulling the person aside and giving them some instruction in terms of what the scriptures have to say, you know, especially if they're a brand new Christian and kind of don't know any better yet. It can be elevated to some degree of, of rebuke uh, if the person refuses to, you know, listen to instruction, uh, can even elevate to the level of being withdrawn from, you know, being declared no longer a faithful member of this local congregation. And I know that, that, that whole concept is foreign to a lot of denominations that you know perhaps teach once saved always saved or you know they're they're not that precise about instructing or correcting or confronting their members but nonetheless you know jesus in terms of his church that's what he requires so basically there are yes there are numerous passages that require first of all a local congregation to exercise this kind of process if you will on sinful members Briefly, Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 10 and 11, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 and 17, 
1 John 1, verses 5 through 7, and 1 Corinthians 5, 10 and 11 especially, would all point to this need that, you know, Jesus, again, expects the local congregations to practice this kind of discipline. Now, in the case mentioned, let's say one person, you know, hears something about another member in a quote-unquote inappropriate relationship, certainly it would probably be wise first for the concerned member to approach the fellow member in private to discuss the situation. I mean, it's possible that the concerned member may have misunderstood, may have overheard part of something, didn't get the whole story, you know, may not be aware of all the facts, etc. So private would be useful to sort of clear the air uh, regarding the situation. Now, having done that, if the concerned member still believes that sin is involved, you know, a good second, and I might mention third step, would be found in Matthew chapter 18. Brian, you want to read Matthew 18, 15 through 17? Yes, here it says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And so basically, Jesus himself, while he was alive, was giving instructions for his church that would be established after his death on the day of Pentecost, uh, Acts 2. In this particular case, sort of like an escalating process, if you will. Um, And I think for the most part, we would tend to say, you know, if we've done something wrong, would prefer to have someone, you know, come to us, you know, privately to kind of work it out, you know, give us the opportunity to correct it. But if we, you know, disagree or if we refuse, then, yeah, there is a process that people should follow within the local congregation. Brian, any uh, other thoughts? Yeah, I appreciate how you took time at the beginning there to talk about and really define what church discipline is. Because, I mean, you really gave a great explanation as to not only what it is, but why it's necessary. And, you know, unfortunately, we see today, even in the Lord's Church, that there are some congregations, they just don't practice it. Or maybe they understand that there's a need for it, but they give somebody months and months and months to either come out of the sin or to address it. And that's not appropriate either, right? I mean, there are some sins that need to be addressed immediately and others. I mean, the Bible doesn't give us a specific time frame, but there's just some things that you know it has to be dealt with right away. And some might argue, well, I have to give them time to repent and things like that. I wouldn't argue that. But once again, it it can drag on or sometimes just be absent altogether. All right. Well, and as I mentioned uh, for a few moments ago, you know, First Corinthians chapter five. Corinthians had, you know, this person in their assembly that was committing a sin that was not even done among the Gentiles in general, and the local Corinthian Christians there. We're, we're, I guess, boasting. They said, yes, we're, you know, we're tolerant or, you know, it's okay. You know, we're, uh, you know, we're love and, you know, we're showing love to this person. Paul rebukes him. First uh, Corinthians chapter five or six, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Next verse, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Uh, to your point, Brian, about you need to take action. Now, again, there's a judgment regarding the time frame, 
but you need to take action for multiple reasons. One is for the sake of the sinner, but also for the sake of the congregation and the potential evil influence that they may have on the congregation as part of this. That is it. And uh, it's just part of doing what God wants us to do. Not easy. (laughs) Not easy by, by any stretch, but yes, something that God wants us to do. Okay. Joshua writes in, do all churches of Christ teach the same thing? The quick answer is no. Uh, Unfortunately, just because a church identifies as the Lord's church does not mean that they are obedient to the doctrine of Christ. And, you know, when you think about the church of Christ and, you know, sometimes people wonder, like, how did that church get, get its name? Well, the Bible, we read, the churches of Christ salute you in Romans. And so... But more importantly, it's really named because it's the Lord's church. So in other words, the the church that Jesus established by his death on the cross. And so when you think about within the churches of Christ, you know, based once again on what you'll see on their signs often, as within many religions, you know, there are congregations that have liberal interpretations of the truth and associated practices that support those beliefs. And so I kind of jotted down just a few areas where, you know, we see, once again, churches of Christ stray from the truth. And so, you know, just in general, the rejection of Bible authority for what's practiced. So, you know, we've had a previous podcast, and certainly there's many articles on our website that talk about this idea of how do you establish Bible authority? And, you know, we talk about direct command, approved example, and necessary inference. Well, if you don't recognize those, and some people would even argue that those aren't valid ways to to establish authority, ultimately what it allows them to do is to justify almost any practice. If it accomplishes good, for instance, or as you mentioned, Jeff, it's done in the name of love. But, you know, when you think about what the consequences of that are, well, you end up with people in unscriptural marriages, you end up with those who have been withdrawn from at other congregations that are allowed to place membership. So you, in essence, don't have respect for church discipline that another church has practiced correctly. So you have to have that Bible authority. So anyhow, that's one of the things you see, rejection of Bible authority. Uh, Or how about the use of the treasury for all kinds of things? So, for instance, there are many, quote-unquote, churches of Christ that support what we might call general benevolence programs, such as food pantries to feed the community. They'll send tractor trailers full of food to communities that have natural disasters. And you'll even see on the side of the semi-truck, the trailer, you know, churches of Christ, food program, things like that. You'll have managed care facilities that are funded from the treasury out of the Church of Christ local treasury that's gathered on the first day of the week. Or maybe they pool money with other churches to support national and global evangelistic efforts, you know, such as radio shows and printed publications. Once again, all in the name of the good that it accomplishes. Or some will even fund educational institutions or different kinds of ministries, educational and prison ministries and all of that. Well, if we study the scriptures, we see that we're not authorized to use the contribution of the saints for those kinds of things. But you see that a lot in, quote-unquote, liberal churches of Christ. One other one that I had was, you know, just the establishment of organizations to replace or supplement 
God's organizational structure. So they'll have churches that operate as a for-profit enterprise. They'll sell religious material or even commercial merchandise and bring money into the church like a business. Or they'll build hospitals or they'll build or create foundations to do things like, hey, hold gospel meetings and evangelize, have lectures. Once again, all in the name of perpetuating the truth. And then, you know, what's the logical way these things often go is you end up with councils like you see in the denominations to oversee and even manage local congregations. So all of these can be clearly shown in the scriptures to be contrary to God's will. But once again, these are the differences that you often see in what we might call institutional churches of Christ versus non-institutional or conservative versus liberal. So anyhow, for the most part, Anything that you see in denominations and many other religions have found their way into some churches of Christ. And so we actually have a really good section, Jeff, that you put together on our website called Seeking a Church. And you can find that under the topics menu. And, you know, I glanced at that this week because I just wanted to refresh my memory what was in there. And I, and I noticed that a lot of these things we just talked about are in there, where it talks about, once again, that difference between conservative and liberal churches of Christ. So highly recommend that. Seeking a Church is the name of the section under the Topics menu on our website. Jeff? Well, and I appreciate those thoughts. You know, certainly in this particular case, they may have a scriptural designation, as you said, you know, Romans chapter 16, 16, Churches of Christ, salute you. Certainly a biblical title, if you will, that you could put on the sign. But, you know, like a book and its cover, you can't judge a congregation just by its name. And as you pointed out, you know, over the years, at least in terms of, you know, churches of Christ showing up historically, you know, mid-1800s, you know, over the years, uh, you know, we have suffered our own, if I want to say, divisions or denominationalisms or whatever. Where, yes, indeed, today you do find uh, quite a diversity, if you will, amongst congregations that call themselves churches of Christ, you know, claim to follow Christ, that unfortunately in many cases don't. Yeah, and often what you see starts in denominations eventually makes its way into the church. That's the sad part, isn't it? <laughs> so True. Well, and you know, as we were talking earlier regarding you know women preachers and the women's liberation movement, similar with homosexuality. Yeah, what off, as you said, what often starts in the culture will somewhat sometimes quickly find its way into denominations. And then, you know, often just a matter of time before it finds itself into, you know, churches of Christ. You know, we, in, in some ways they just tend to be you know, lagging in terms of, you know, cultural, cultural trends. But a lot of them will, will bow, if you will, to cultural pressure, uh, even when it goes against what the scriptures teach explicitly. Yeah, in fact, along that line, I think it's a good segue to the next question for you, Jeff, from David. Why does the church not have yard sales? Yeah, that's a good one. So, again, if we go back to the scriptures and Jesus, you know, giving us instruction directly or through uh, his inspired apostles that wrote the New Testament, who gave us instructions for the church, how it should be organized, how it should worship God, how it should conduct its business, etc., how it should fund its activities, etc., you know, the only thing we have uh, is the free will offerings or contributions by the members on the Lord's Day. You know, that's that's all we've got. 
First Corinthians chapter 16, uh, verses 1 and 2, you know, shows that as an example. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also, on the first day of each week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. Uh, we see similar kind of uh, insight into giving, attitudes that members should have uh, toward giving, uh, numerous passages uh, starting off like Acts chapter 4, verse 32 uh, through 35, uh, Acts 11, 27 through 30, 1 Corinthians 16, as we just mentioned, 2 Corinthians 8, verses you know, basically 1 through 15, 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 and 7, likewise, in many ways throughout, you know, 2 Corinthians, uh, after the Corinthians had responded, or after he'd given... Paul had given them instructions in First Corinthians. So, uh, you know, basically the pattern is, you know, members contribute willingly, cheerfully, you know, as God has prospered them, no tithing, uh, that's an Old Testament concept, into the you know, local local treasury on the Lord's Day. And for at that point, it's up to, you know, typically the, the, the elders uh, of the local congregation to use those funds for the work that the congregation has been given. So, yard sales, well, not authorized, you know, I mean, simply speaking. You know, there are many religious institutions out there that certainly claim to follow the Bible, yet they go beyond this very simple pattern, you know, free will offerings on the Lord's Day, to get money in a wide, wide variety of ways. Soliciting funds from the general public, trading donated goods or services for money, like, you know, yard sales, pie sales, car washes, garage sales, etc. Holding a carnival, gambling type raffles, bingo games, uh, even quote-unquote casino night. How about churches charging admission to see a movie? How about churches requiring a fixed percentage tithe, which we mentioned earlier? How about congregations charging membership dues? How about soliciting funds from other congregations or, you know, some kind of activity not related to hardship reasons, which is the example we saw specifically in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, running a church-sponsored business, daycare, school, publishing company, renting out part of the building, investing in the stock market, etc. A lot of perhaps useful ways of gaining money, but not scriptural ways of gaining money for the local congregation. Right? Yeah, that's quite the list, isn't it? And and you're right, it's all in the name of, well, hey, we're being good stewards, right? We're we're earning money for the Lord, but yeah, as you pointed out, God funded the church. His method was to fund it through the contributions, free will offerings. Right, exactly. Okay, Brian, for you. So Ruth writes in, almost similar to the one of the early questions earlier in the podcast. Ruth writes in when the church is led by elders, only men. Why can't women be involved with communion, reading scripture, counseling, etc.? Yeah, what I like about this question is, to your point earlier, we definitely established based on a question about, you know, could women be leaders? Okay, no, they can't. All right. So Ruth then seems to be asking, well, Okay, so they can't be leaders. We understand it should only be men that are leaders. But why not do things like serving the Lord's Supper, uh, you know, reading scripture, things like that? I mean, what could possibly be wrong with that? Is that really a leadership position? And so, you know, I think what we want to understand is that it does really center around some of those same passages that we considered in the previous question about these women in leadership positions. 
you know, the Holy Spirit through Paul, once again, we'll just read it one more time, 1 Corinthians 14, 34, let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive as the law also says. Now, some might think, well, you know, just reading a scripture or serving the Lord's Supper isn't being a leader, so what could possibly be wrong with that? And how could that be, you know, usurping a man's authority? But we have even in passages like 1 Timothy 2.12, which we also considered, you know, Paul says, I suffer, this is a King James version this time I'll be reading, but I suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. So we see two different sections of scripture here that talk about silence in the assembly when we're worshiping. And so if you were to look at this word usurp in uh, you know, a dictionary definition of it, it means to take the place of someone in position of power. So by leading aspects of worship, a woman would be taking the place or taking authority over a man. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15.35 kind of expounds on this by saying, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. So you know, if there were women that were just meeting by themselves to worship and there were no men present, well, this wouldn't be an issue. But if there are men present, that's when these passages really, you know, matter, if you will, because once again, you know, it's clear that women are to remain silent and men are to lead all aspects of worship. That's the way God wanted it to be. Now, as it relates to counseling, because Ruth also asked about counseling, can women counsel you know, there's no issue with women counseling, girls, or even boys for that matter. But as it was mentioned, or as we've talked about all along here, and in fact, we I referenced Titus chapter 3, verses 2 through 5, you, you'll see in that section there that Paul told Titus to encourage the older women to teach the younger women regarding how they should conduct themselves in a godly manner. So they could certainly counsel, and in fact, once again, Paul encouraged it so that they can teach these younger women. And so, you know, kind of like we've been saying all along for a lot of these questions and a lot of the things we've considered, it really comes down to respecting God's word and this hierarchy, if you will, that he established. And so, Jeff, I'll turn it over to you for any thoughts. Yeah, good thoughts. Well, and the other thing I might add is that, you know, there are some things, and this is going to sound a little bit vague, but let me see if I can clarify. You know, there are some things that may not be you know, wrong in and of themselves, but they're almost like the first step in the wrong direction. And I guess what, what I'm trying to highlight is like, as you said, the verses talk about usurping authority, teaching over men. Okay. But can't we at least get the women involved in this? Can't we at least get them involved in that? You know, in some sort of a public manner. And it's like, well, okay, what's what's the end goal here? like to begin moving in the direction and eventually get to where we really want to be. And that is, you know, women and men equally, no difference, doing anything, everything within the local congregation. Is that, is that really where you want to go? And in recognizing that as the end goal, it's like, you know, do you even want to take the first one or two steps in that direction? You know, even if it was somewhat gray, you want to take the first one or two steps into the gray? knowing that in most cases that trend continues on into further their uh, you know adoption of things that are wrong yeah you know, again there's there's that kind of argument as well i guess brian 
Yeah, absolutely. And it just so often happens that way. You start out with anything sort of innocently, but to your point, it changes over, progresses, maybe I should say, in the wrong direction to something completely unscriptural. Exactly. All right, Jeff, the next question for you comes from Faith. And she asks, what does Christ mean by, on this rock I will build my church, especially the church, in Matthew 16, 18? Okay. So, I tell you, for our listeners, why don't you go ahead and read... Uh, Terry, why don't you back up to verse 13 through 18 to sort of get the context of this phrase. Yeah, sounds good. Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they say, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Right. So, in essence, if you look at the whole context, the rock, let's kind of decompose this phrase into rock, and then church. So the rock of verse 18 is not Peter, because if you look into the Greek, there's a gender difference between the words used for this rock and for Peter, one being masculine, one being neuter, if I remember. But no, it's actually the foundational confession made by Peter, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that's the rock that Jesus would build his church on. Now, church in this context, reference to those who would follow him, you know, as his faithful, you know, obedient disciples. Other passages refer to this group as Jesus' body, uh, Ephesians 5, 23, Colossians 1, 18, uh, and verse 24 as well. Uh, and as we mentioned earlier, in, in some contexts, it's also referred to as a kingdom. Uh, again, it kind of de- depends on the figure of speech. Jesus as a head, church as the body, uh, Jesus as king, you know, church as the kingdom, um, etc. Teaching that coming to this kingdom of heaven, if you notice in the Gospels, you know, both Jesus and John the Baptist preached that this thing, this this kingdom of heaven was at hand or near or was about to happen, which it did within the lifetimes of, you know, the people in the first century. Now, I might quickly mention, uh, lest people get confused, uh, when Jesus said he would build his church, you know, it did not refer to him building some kind of a physical structure. Jesus' uh, physical you know, father, uh, Joseph, you know, was a carpenter. Okay, fine. They probably built buildings. Uh, but Jesus is not referring to you know, building a structure, a building, if you will, uh, which a lot of people will use that term today uh, for quote-unquote church, meaning the building. Nor is it a particular local congregation like Jesus is going to set up uh, you know, his church in the city of Jerusalem, you know, as a local congregation. Uh, I might also mention it's not referring to a particular religious denomination as, you know, Jesus is going to set up the Catholic Church or the Methodist Church or the Baptist Church or the Lutheran Church. No, singular, he would set up his church, his, you know, church universal, if you will, you know, all of the saved, uh, if you will. Again, as we see, initially being uh, preached and people joining it in Acts chapter 2. Ryan, any other thoughts? Yeah, thanks for making that distinction, because, yes, Peter, 
according to the Catholics, right, was the first pope, and, you know, the church was built on him, and, and as you pointed out so well, it, it has absolutely nothing to do with that. Grammatically, it's definitely not talking about Peter that his church was built on. So anyhow, it was worth going through all that to make that distinction, right, because there's so much error uh, around that. Sure. All right, you get the next question from George. He writes in, I have a question I've never heard discussed. What is your opinion of a pastor running two separate churches? Can you see any problems with this? Definitely can see a problem. <laughs> Slightly, right? <laughs> yeah, on many levels, right? Yeah, so, I mean, it would violate God's autonomous structure of the church. And when we say autonomous, we're talking about, you know, independent and self-governing structure that he designed for the church. And not only that, but, you know, he has a requirement that church oversight be by more than one man. So there's always multiple elders that are required to oversee a church. And so, you know, if you look at the pattern for the church in the New Testament, we see that there's only one leadership for each church, and that's qualified elders, as mentioned, right? And we see that in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. A couple passages to consider that kind of help reinforce what we're saying here. That's 1 Peter chapter 5. Beginning in verse 1, the elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, he will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. So that passage makes it clear that they are elders oversee the flock singular among them they are examples to that flock and so we see here specifically it's talking about one flock not flocks as in plural acts chapter 20 and verse 17 here talks about from miletus paul sent to ephesus and called for the elders of the church then verse 28 tells us therefore he says take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So once again, we see it's a singular flock. Acts chapter 14, verse 23. So when they had appointed elders, once again, plural, in every church, singular, and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And so, you know, very important to understand this distinction and we really see God's wisdom here. I mean, if you think about eldership over a specific flock or congregation, they get to know the congregation. They make sure that the evangelist is preaching the truth, that air isn't creeping into the church, all of these things. Now, can you imagine how difficult that would be to do for more than one church? Like when you worship, which church are you going to? You'd almost have to go one and then the other. It just would be confusing. And so we see God's wisdom and why he would just have them oversee one church. Now, I'm not sure of George's religious affiliation, but uh, Jeff and I often like to talk about anytime somebody brings up the word pastor, oftentimes they may be, if they're, especially if they're from a denomination, referring to this concept where you have a religious body where one man oversees the whole church. And as we've seen, you know, this isn't authorized in Scripture as there must be multiple men who oversee the church. And, you know, it's important to understand that from a biblical perspective, a pastor is an elder. They're synonymous terms. And so the Greek word translated elder in the Bible comes from the word presbyteros, and the word pastor comes from the word Greek word poimen. 
And both of these terms, you know, refer to men who are overseers or shepherds. So depending on your translation, you'll see these terms used differently. And so, you know, we just bring this up because we always want to use biblical terms based on their biblical definition. So anyhow, Jeff, yeah, that one's um, hopefully pretty clear to George that it just wouldn't make sense, number one. But more importantly, God said, here is the structure that the church should be managed by. Right. Well, uh, and you know, this concept of multiple churches kind of being organized together, you know, as we mentioned, at least within, you know, New Testament time, you know, each congregation, independent, autonomous, etc. But it's interesting, historically speaking, that one of the early departures from that pattern in, you know, pretty early on, like even like a second century A.D., was that you start having like a singular bishop in charge of a church that also had elders. So you get this distinction between bishop and elder. And then you start having, you know, bishops in the city start being over bishops of churches in the countryside. And then you start getting archbishops, metropolitans, and a, and a more and more hierarchy. That eventually emerged into what we would understand as the Catholic Church with the Pope at the top of the pyramid, you know, so to speak, as the vicar of Christ. So, again, an important distinction between Christ Church and the churches of men. Yeah, and it really highlights what you had mentioned earlier. You know, you start down this path of error, and then it leads to multiple structures. You know, they have cardinals and you know, it, it always ends up in just not looking like anything that we see in the Bible, you know. Well, true. And, you know, you might not have uh, a, a religious denomination that has as rigorous a hierarchy as the Catholic Church. But you still have, you know, collections of churches together that are somehow run or governed by assemblies or synods or, you know, councils or whatever. Uh, that call the shots, if you will, in terms of what the church, local churches are supposed to teach, or the person who's in charge or persons in charge of the local congregation, is, you know, picked by, you know, someone else. So, yeah, a lot, a lot of patterns out there that are not according to the New Testament. Yeah, and you know, this next question, you know, what I like about it is it, it really talks about good intention, and and so it's an anonymous question that was submitted where somebody asked, can the church funds collected on Sundays, be used as a collection or contribution to the bereaved family towards a funeral when the church member dies. So once again, what could possibly be wrong with that, right? <laughs> exactly. And, you know, and, and this goes sound a little contradictory and a little odd, but an answer is no and yes. <laughs> I know that's going to be weird, but let me let me tease that apart. So in terms of the work of the local congregation and hence how it can use its money collected on the first day of the week, you know, there's nothing in the New Testament that would authorize the church to be in the quote-unquote business of conducting funerals, paying for funerals, having funerals in the building, etc. Again, something that's just not authorized. Okay, So that's the no part, you know, give, you know giving money to the family, you know, to do the funeral. So no, no authorization there. Now, that said, there may be, maybe a case that, you know, if the family are Christians, if they're poor and in need of benevolence, 
Okay, well then perhaps the church could provide some funding for them in the form of benevolence or charity, you know, for certain essentials, you know, food, clothing, shelter, bills that need to be paid, etc. Although, at least within our modern society, that tends to be exceedingly rare. So I think in general, the answer to the question, you know, can the, can the church, you know, spend money out of the Lord's treasury just to, as, as a gift, if you will, as a token of condolences, you know, to the family, to, to have a funeral, the answer would be no. Brian, how about that? Yeah, and I like that because you know, sometimes the answer is it depends, right? And you have to understand. Yeah, exactly. All right, that takes us to a question submitted by Baseo. Let me give you the question, and then I'll give our listeners just a little bit of background. Does Jesus support the separation of church and state? Now, I say background because here, at least in the United States, that phrase, separation of church and state, gets tossed around quite a bit to say that, you know, the state should not be involved in religion and religion should not be involved in the state. So, again, with that sort of an intro, Brian, why don't you take it away? Yeah, and, you know, really the answer is yes. Uh, And we see this, for instance, over in Luke chapter 20. If you were to look at that section of Scripture, and we won't read all these passages in verses 20 through 25, as I'm sure our listeners know, if you know what the Jews often did to Jesus as it relates to, you know, trying to get him to contradict himself, or they, we might say, would try to trip him up with his answers. And we have that in this case here, when verse 20 talks about they sent spies who pretended to be righteous, and once again, their goal was to try and catch him in his words and so forth. And so they ask him a question in verse 22, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, they were probably trying to get him once again to say, oh, no, no, you just give the money to the Lord, nothing to Caesar. And they'd be like, oh, see, Caesar, you know, he's not respecting anyhow. Well, verse 23 tells us, it says, but he perceived their craftiness and said to them, why do you test me? Show me a denarius, which is a form of money back then. Whose image and inscription does it have? Jesus asked. They answered and said, Caesar's. And he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And so we see Jesus is separating here, once again, as it came to paying taxes versus your contribution, that you should do both, is really what he's saying. Now, John chapter 18 and verse 36, Jesus also says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, so that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now my kingdom is not from here. So now this is an account of where Jesus was arrested or would be arrested by the provisional government there. And he makes it clear that my kingdom isn't part of this world. So there is no merging of the church and state, which to your point, Jeff, we see certainly when it comes to Islam, for instance, and you think about Sharia law and so forth, it's an absolute blending of church and state, and that's how they would prefer, but not according to what we see in the scriptures. One other passage here, and once again, I'm just going to reference this. I won't read all of it, but I'll encourage our listeners to take a look at Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, where it talks about, you know, we are to be subject to the governing authorities, that there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. So God appoints them, but it doesn't mean that there's a commingling between God's church and the government. And it goes on to talk about how, you know, God gave them and they exist for a reason, right, to administer justice and those kinds of things. 
And so, you know, once again, verse uh, six emphasizes, because of this, you also pay taxes for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. And then much like Jesus says, he says in verse seven, render therefore to all their due taxes to whom taxes are due, customs who customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So clearly separate, we should honor both, we should obey both, but they are separate entities, if you will. Jeff? Yeah, no, good point. Well, you know, does Jesus want his church to take over civil government and have a theocracy like the nation of Israel in the Old Testament? No. You know, as you pointed out, you know, John chapter 18. Does Jesus want his church to sort of like somehow exert uh, control over governments? Uh, You know, as we saw perhaps during the, the Dark Ages with the Catholic Church pretty much, you know, appointing rulers and the rulers had to obey, you know, the church, et cetera. Well, no, that's not authorized by the scriptures. Does God want local governments to do what's right and recognize the difference between right and wrong, between the righteous and evil doers? Yes, certainly we see that in Romans chapter 13. You know, does God want governments to pick a religion like the religion of the country of X is Lutheranism or Catholicism or, you know, a mandated religion. Well, no, that's, that's not in the scriptures either. So having a government that acknowledges right and wrong, sure. But having this very tight coupling between the two, uh, no, you know, as you correctly pointed out. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, kind of like you mentioned earlier about, you know, the Catholic Church, you start seeing what's happening the centuries following the first century. You know, we don't see any examples in the Bible of any commingling between the Lord's Church and the government, as we've read, you know, Jesus made that distinction. But now you start to see, or we did see, when you look back in history, you start getting to the second and third centuries, and all of a sudden the church is absolutely becoming blended with the state. And ever since then, right, there's been that blending in a lot of religions. So yeah, uh, history teaches us a lesson there as well. Uh, True. All right, I think we're down to our last question. We are. We are down to the last. And this one's from David. He asks, what biblical example is there for elders of the church interviewing applicants to the church? Kind of an interesting phraseology there, isn't it? It is. And I assume by applicants, he means you know Christians who want to place membership with the local congregation. And certainly there are several scriptures that have a bearing on that. Uh, include the example of Paul, uh, Acts chapter 9, verses 26 and 27, who was attempting to join himself with the church there in Jerusalem. Uh, we talk about Hebrews 13, 17, where it talks about the members voluntarily submitting to the oversight of the elders. You mentioned some passages earlier about the role of elders in tending and protecting the flock uh, among them. 1 John 1, 7 talks about the restriction of spiritual fellowship to faithful Christians. So you wrap all those together, and basically the fellowship between members in a local congregation. And notice I said members of a local congregation, which is a distinction from visitors, perhaps. It's conditional on being faithful and obedient to God's word. You know, one is not a member of a local congregation just because they attend, just because they show up. There should be some process, and, you know, again, this is kind of a matter of judgment or expediency. 
where the prospective member and the congregation's leaders get together to discuss their respective beliefs, expectations, etc. And such a process, uh, you could see, would help to protect you know the local flock from you know, classic phraseology wolves in sheep's clothing you know coming into the flock and just being there and accepted as part of the congregation without any sort of discussion or process so there you go a uh, uh, is there an example you know from the bible for elders doing that no are the principles that would make such a thing prudent there? Certainly. Wise? Certainly. Required? I would tend to lean even toward required. Since the elders have to, you know, somehow protect the flock from those who are, quote-unquote, outside of the flock. Brian, what do you think? Yeah, I completely agree. And, you know, I think we could say the opposite is true. I mean, if you're going to place membership at a church, even though, once again, the scriptures don't say, you know, thou shalt review what that church is practicing, it only makes sense. I mean, you want to understand what are they teaching? What do the elders believe in? And, and certainly, I don't think it would be inappropriate for you to have some questions about, hey, what does the, the church teach as it relates to divorce and remarriage and church discipline or whatever it might be? And it's not uncommon for people to visit a congregation for a period of time just to get a sense of, are they following the truth? And am I going to be placing a membership with a church that is truly aligned to what the Bible teaches. So I guess in that sense, Jeff, it kind of goes both ways, doesn't it? Uh, true. And that's why I kind of said, you know, mutual expectations, mutual beliefs uh, as well. Uh, and certainly it, it's prudent, if you will, for such conversations to go on up front, set those expectations, share those mutual beliefs. And, you know, if they're not compatible, well, you know, you don't extend membership. Uh, in some ways, it's easier to do that than to, you know, announce their members, have them get embedded in the congregation, establish friendships, etc. And then it comes out that they are, you know, fill in the blank. You know, they've been married and divorced multiple times, or they have some uh, unscriptural beliefs regarding, I mean, you name it, right? You know, better to, uh, as they say, nip the problem in the bud at the beginning, as opposed to letting it fester. Yeah, that's right. That's why I like how when you answer the question, you said it's just wise, right? It absolutely is wise. So, Jeff, we've had two episodes on a variety of questions about the church, and it's sort of run the gamut, hasn't it? From that first episode, we've talked about, hey, what is the church? Do I have to attend? To some of these questions that are more thought-provoking and probably require a little bit more study, right? True. Well, and I think it's good that, uh, you know, we, we offer all of these different questions in their diversity, you know, to our listeners, because it does indicate, you know, first of all, that, you know, the, you know, the church belongs to Jesus. And in a lot of ways, he's specified things he wants it to do and has sort of left alone, you know, things he doesn't want it to do, you know, respecting the silence of the scriptures, so to speak. And maybe there's a whole lot of aspects that people didn't really think about that they need to, you know, in terms of the pattern, you know, New Testament pattern for the local congregation in terms of who's a member and not a member. You know, what's the organizational structure or the leadership structure? You know, how often do they come together to worship? You know, is, is fellowship conditional? Uh, and, you know, again, the list just kind of goes on and on of, of things that are specified within the scriptures that we need to be careful 
to observe lest we join ourselves to like a man-made denomination that's not really part of the Lord's church. That's right. In fact, you know, we've covered so many different elements of the church that we have a host of additional material that we can uh, refer you to back at our website, biblequestions.org. If you look under the topics menu or even on that front page, there's an alphabetical index embedded right in there. And if you were to click on the letter A, you can find more information about autonomy, how we were talking about churches being self-governing and independent. Under C, we have information about the church overall, like we've been talking about, the church of Christ, you know, related to the question about are all the all the teaching the same, church government, and civil government. So all that can be found under C. If you click on the letter E, we have more information about elders, F for fellowship, H for headship, G for giving, K for kingdom, R for repentance, and then under W, withdrawal and women leaders. So Jeff, a wide range of subjects, right, based on all the different questions we answered that have some relevant ties back to our website. Yes, indeed. And, you know, as we always like to say, you know, look up the material at the website, read it, study it. More importantly, look at the related scriptures, you know, dig in the scriptures just to make sure that what we're claiming the scriptures saying is indeed what they are saying. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Bible Questions podcast. We invite you to visit our website at biblequestions.org, where you can find over a thousand scripture-filled articles on a wide variety of Bible topics, along with about two dozen free Bible study lessons and other Bible study aids. Plus, you can submit a Bible question to us to get a personal response within a couple of days. Check it all out at biblequestions.org.